You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I invite you to be seated. Jesus lives. Jesus lives. It's the whole Easter story. In fact, the whole gospel summed up in two words. It's the story that was proclaimed on this day, 2,000 some years ago, and is still being proclaimed. What does it mean? Now, I want you to imagine for a second that you live about 500 years ago, and you read in some bulletin, in the newspaper perhaps, that there's this new theory from some guy you've never heard of. And this theory is that the Earth is actually not the center of the universe. The sun does not, in fact, revolve around the Earth, but contrarywise, it's the sun around which the Earth revolves. Now, this goes against every authority you've ever heard. Every person you've ever read, every smart, intelligent, religious person you've talked to, it goes against what you can see, right? You get up in the morning and you watch the sun go over your head. There's even some some passages in the Bible, like Joshua, which says that God stops the sun in the sky, and you're not sure how that could possibly be if, in fact, the sun doesn't move and we move around it. The belief proposed by Copernicus that the sun was the center of our solar system wasn't just one belief among others that you could accept or adopt without any kind of implications. If you were to accept it, there were implications for a bunch of other things. You had to change a whole bunch of other beliefs if you were going to believe that the sun was in fact the center of the solar system. This is the kind of belief This is the kind of truth that Jesus lives, claims. It is not just one more belief among others. It is the belief, the claim, around which everything must find itself, revolving, or else not find itself at all. A couple years ago, I was meeting with a Bible study group of of pastors from a more kind of liberal synod, and we were meeting to discuss the, the text for the coming week, and we were meeting actually during Holy Week, and to read these resurrection narratives. And it became kind of clear that some of the people in this group actually didn't believe in the resurrection. This was kind of a surprise to me. And I said, wait, 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 hold on. You guys think, do you, do you really think Jesus is some dusty bones right now? And if so, why are we still talking about it? And there was some reminiscing from some of them about those good days when they used to believe. And there was some hemming and hawing about how they had some scientists in their congregation who just, you know, they got to somehow speak to them. The assumption being that they and the scientists in their congregation, who evidently were the only ones to know that dead people stay dead, right? That's a new scientific discovery that they didn't have any idea of in the ancient world at all. But they couldn't fit that within their worldview. They couldn't fit the claim that Jesus is living, that Jesus lives. They couldn't fit it within, with all the other beliefs they already know. And so they threw it out. But that's just the point. The resurrection of Jesus is not just one claim among others. If it's true, it reorients your entire world. 
every aspect of your life and your being, your most basic assumptions about your future and your past and who you are, everything must change if Jesus is in fact alive. And I want to look at, there's actually, I could talk for a long time on all that will change. In fact, that's kind of what I do every Sunday. But today I want to look at just three. Three things that are true that overturn your normal way of thinking because Jesus is alive. And we're going to take one out of each of our lessons. The first one is this. Because Jesus lives, your past has no power over your future. Because Jesus lives, your past has no power over your future. Now, we, we talked about this actually a couple weeks ago in Lent. I think the fifth Sunday in Lent. But it's stated again here in Isaiah 65. When Isaiah talks about what God's, God's new act of salvation that is so great, that is so, so different from what has gone before, that it is a new creation. Here's what Isaiah writes. Behold, I, which is God, not Isaiah, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. It's a basic human conviction that we all have that our past is what shapes our future and what gives us our future. The decisions we make that set us up for success or for failure, the, the people we've harmed that come back to hurt us and harm us back, we are in control, right? And the decisions we make, or maybe the decisions that other people made for us and did to us, those things tell us who we are and they give us the future that we can expect. But if Jesus is alive, then the crucified guy is alive. The guy who was crucified to take away everything that is wrong with you and your past. Whose obedience, whose perfect human obedience, perfectly fleshed out and lived out what we were called to be as human beings. And so if Jesus lives, then everything that's wrong with you, everything that is part of your past, and everything that is good about your past, no longer gives you your future. Jesus does. All your failings, all your guilt, all your regret, everything that makes you not very much fun to be around. Now, see, you're going to be a joy, Isaiah says. God creates Jerusalem, which is the people of God, to be a joy. He delights in them. And this is going to be really hard for you to imagine, but there are some times that I'm told that I'm less than a joy to be around. <laughs> my wife and my children have to suffer the set, those sad moments when I am something less than perfect. Actually, I'm a lot less than perfect. Times when I fail to bring delight and life and love to the people that I love and care about. There are plenty of times when I don't do what I wish I had done. And I create in the world hurt and harm. Hurt and harm that very well can carry with me and my children and my wife and my family and my neighbors my whole life. But the message that God is creating a new heavens and a new earth and those former things shall not be remembered is the message that when God, when you stand before God at the end, you will be a delight to his eyes, a joy to behold, because you will be created anew in the resurrected Jesus. His victory, his obedience, his cross and his resurrection will be yours. So because Jesus lives, your past does not determine your future. Jesus does. The second thing, because Jesus lives, life and not death is your certainty. What are the two things that are certain in life? 
taxes and death, right? That seems pretty common sense. No one's going to argue with you on that, except for me, today, because Jesus lives. And therefore, if you believe that Jesus lives, what you believe is that Jesus is actually going to come again, and he's going to raise all the dead. And if you happen to be alive when he comes again, you get to skip the death part. You get to be transformed into immortality, clothed with his immortal life instantly, and you get to skip death. So death is not a certainty, and every time you pray, come Lord Jesus, every time you think, Jesus, my king is coming back to save us, you're thinking, I get to skip out on death maybe. That's kind of cool. Maybe he'll delay, and maybe death will be your certainty. But you know what is actually the certainty that's never going to go away? You will be raised. Everyone will be raised. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all, of, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because Jesus lives, the thing that claimed to be our certainty ever since Adam rebelled is a liar. It's like a great horrible wolf who has sunk his teeth into every human being that has ever lived, but finally sank his teeth into Jesus and had them ripped from his mouth. And he can never hold on to anyone again. Christ has conquered death, trampling it down by his own. So death is not actually certain for you, but your resurrection is. And this is not necessarily good news, is it? The news that all will rise. Because there are some who will rise through faith in Christ, clothed with his image, and there'll be a joy. And they will live forever with God, reigning on a new, on a new earth. Those who, through faith in Christ, receive everything that he is as a gift. His righteousness, his joy, his salvation. But there are those who will insist on their past being the thing that makes them who they are. On their choices being the thing that make the difference. They will insist on being their own lords and judged according to their own works. And they will be raised to flee forever from God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. They will be raised to live forever in the presence of the God who they spurned and actually hate. And that's a terrifying thought. That's a really terrifying thought. And that means, actually C.S. Lewis, when he's speaking about this, this new life into which we will be raised, either into the glory of Christ or into rebellion, he says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror or corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in nightmares. All day long, we are, in some degree or another, helping one another to, these, to one of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, with awe and circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our interactions with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, all our play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. 
and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortals. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You have never talked to a mere mortal because Jesus lives. And that means because Jesus lives and, he is all, and the resurrection is all our future, there's work to do now. That's the third thing. Jesus lives and therefore there is work to do. I've been thinking a lot lately um, about how your knowledge of your future is, is what gives you your present and your ability to live in and work in your present, right? If, if you aren't sure where you're going to live in a few weeks, it's really hard to focus on what you're supposed to do today and what you, sh- what you should be doing today. If a kid is at school and he doesn't know that there's going to be a meal for him when he gets home, how on earth is he supposed to take his test and study? In our community, and our congregation, and there's uncertainty about our future, how do we focus on what we're supposed to be doing now? Because our minds are drawn towards that uncertainty. But we've been given certainty because Jesus lives. We know what our future is. And because we know what our future is, we know what our present should look like. You know that you will look exactly like Jesus in eternity. That you will love like Jesus. You will speak like Jesus. You will feel like Jesus. And it's because he, is, he, 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 is, he lives and because that's who you will be, you've got work to do now. The women at the tomb discover this right from the get-go. They are told to go and tell the disciples that Jesus lives. Just as he told them that he was living. And Luke writes, And they remembered, they the women, remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. See, the fact that Jesus lives makes all of us witnesses of that fact. Not just pastors. The very first people to see the empty tomb are women who are told, go and tell the disciples. Joanna, Salome, and a whole basket of Marys are there, sent as the very first people to go and bear witness that Jesus lives. And this is in in an ancient context, which was a patriarchal society where, where women actually were not legally considered reputable witnesses. You couldn't give testimony in court if you're a woman because who can trust them, right? But they are the ones God chooses to be the first witnesses. The first witnesses. And so it's pretty typical that the disciples don't believe them and dismiss their thing, what they're saying, as an idle tale. But Jesus entrusted his mission to them nonetheless because it is the mission of the whole church. And when he appears to the other 11 and they believe him, it becomes their mission because Jesus claims all authority in heaven and earth and therefore go make disciples. You are now witnesses of these things. So because we know our future, we know the work we have to do in the present to speak like Jesus, that he lives, to act like Jesus, to say with our hands and our mouths and our minds and our lives and our community that Jesus lives. So your life matters because Jesus is alive. Your words, your deeds, your present matters. So there are some of you, perhaps, we're in different places. Some of you maybe don't actually buy it and think that Jesus is not alive right now. And that the disciples who bore this witness were actually lying about it. And I could start a whole other sermon now trying to convince you of this, but I'm not going to. 
I just want to leave you to go home and chew on one thing. I want you to, to think and ask yourself, go home and ask yourself, what's something I'm so certain of that I'm willing to die for it? That if some angry person were to come and say, renounce this word, these words, stop saying this, or I will kill you. And you'd say, I'll take it. No way. Write, the, write it down on a list. Because these 11 men and these early Christians who saw Jesus alive, they were willing to die for that. They were willing to die for that, even though they saw him get tortured to death. They saw him fail in the most epic way possible. And yet they were willing, three days later, to say that they had seen him alive, that they had had a barbecue with him, that they had touched the scars in his hands and side. And they were kept saying this for 40-some years until all of them, in one way or another, suffered immensely for it. And go home and ask yourself, how did that happen? How did those 11 guys get so convinced of something that they were making up that they're willing to die for? But maybe there are some of you who, who, who aren't there. You're saying, no, I know Jesus lives. But you've tucked these words into a little pigeonhole in your world. Yeah, Jesus lives, but, you know, the sky is blue. And two plus two equals four. And the Capitals are the best hockey team. They're just facts of your existence that don't make any difference for what you do on Monday. And then let me ask you to maybe reconsider whether you actually believe these words or not. Because the last thing that Jesus lives means, it means that he's king. Paul says this in Romans. He says, um, he was declared the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Son of God means king of the universe. He was declared king of the universe by his resurrection from the dead, which means he is your king. He is your king. And to him, every, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king. And so ask yourself whether your belief that Jesus lives, if you were to get rid of it, would change any part of your world. And if you can't find one thing that that would change, then maybe you need to reconsider whether you actually believe it. Maybe you need to realize this is my king and he's calling me to follow him. He's calling me to take up my cross and follow him. Maybe that cross is letting go of my power of control. Maybe it's letting go of my need to, to accuse and condemn other people who've hurt me. Maybe it's letting go of my, my sense that I'm worth something because of what I've done. Or maybe it's letting go of my resentment towards God for the things that I've lost. Jesus calls you to take up the cross of trust in him and turn away from anything else that you have put on par with the simple statement that Jesus lives. Now, that's a lot to pack into two words. That's a lot to pack into two words. But just as so many beliefs had to be readjusted by the news that the earth revolves around the sun, every single thing in your world needs to find its place around these words, around the immensely good news that Jesus lives, so your future is not an achievement, but a gift. And your future is not death, but life. And that's a final certainty. And your present moment is filled with identity and meaning and purpose that comes from the identity that he gives witnesses. Witnesses. Those who live and die by the claim, Jesus lives. Or by the one we all like to say today, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. 
We thank you for listening and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.